So let's let's start this morning. Last week we talked about death. Yay, right? Death. That was fun. And and we talked about uh, Pythagoras who wouldn't crush a bean and that got him stabbed, right? That was last week. Um, this week, let's jump to another topic that everybody just loves to talk about. Funerals, right? Everybody's like, yes, I've got two funerals to go to this week. Everybody gets excited about that, don't they? No, they don't. I can't think of anybody that likes going to funerals. I mean, it's nice to see people you haven't seen in a while, family, friends, that kind of thing. But we're gathered around what at a funeral? We're gathered around death, okay? And like we said last week, outside of the death of Christ, we, you know, death's not really something we get excited about, although maybe we should because precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints and what they're going into if they know him. Is way better than what they're leaving here, but funerals are somber affairs. They're quiet, they're deep and thoughtful, unless you live in Ghana, West Africa. I don't remember what year it was, probably 98. We were on a short term trip in Ghana, and um, we had these pastors gathered together, and probably from here to, I don't know, up there at the bear spot where they have the, uh, the bonfires and stuff. Man, we started hearing, and people were singing and shouting, and we're like, hey, is they having church over there? Like, oh, that is a funeral. Yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> Talk to me. What's going on here? They're like, they're celebrating. I'm like, oh. And, and you know, to them, that's, that's what they did. That's, that's how they conducted a funeral, and, and we literally saw them carrying a casket out and people, it's like a parade, and people were clapping and singing and celebrating. I'm like, okay, you know, maybe you guys got this figured out and we don't, but I hate funerals. I hate them. Um, I hate preaching them. I hate going to them. I hate being there. It just feels yucky. Well, today we're going to look at what amounts to the funeral of Jesus. And it's not a celebration. Maybe it should be. We'll get to that. But we're going to see how people respond to the burial of Jesus Christ. And we're going to read from Matthew chapter 27, verses 55 to 66. We are finishing the penultimate chapter of Matthew. Um, We may have two, at most three messages left in Matthew which seems surreal to me. But today we'll finish chapter 27, if you would stand, as we read the very words of God, powerful to the salvation of our souls, life-giving words, even in death. 55 to 66. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, 
After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word inspired by your Holy Spirit, breathed out by you, written down by men, preserved for us so that we can read it today and receive the gifts that you have for us here. Father, open blind eyes. Give life to dead people this morning. And for those who do know you, convict us of our sins, draw us closer to you, And help us to see how the burial of Jesus affects our lives. And may we respond accordingly in the power of your spirit for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 55. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Now, we left off last week with Jesus yielding up his spirit and breathing his last, having finished the work of paying the debt for the sins of his people. And remember that. Jesus gave up his life. He yielded up his spirit. He was in control even of his death. It wasn't because he had lost a lot of blood or because his heart couldn't handle what was going on. It was because Jesus said, it is finished, and he sent his spirit out of his body, and his body became dead. Scripture is clear, the body without the spirit is dead. And Jesus said, go on, spirit, it's time for the body to be dead, and he was dead. We recite it every week, right? He was crucified, he died, and he was buried. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So he had finished that dying work and there was darkness and an earthquake and blood and belief and unbelief and mocking and scorning and all the things going on here. And it is safe to say, though it may not have appeared to be, that it was the most glorious death of all time. But now... Today, in our passage today, we're focusing on those who were there when it happened. We had seen back in the Garden of Gethsemane that all of Jesus' disciples had deserted him and fled into the night after a brief fracas that saw Peter cut off a guy's ear. And then we saw that John and Peter had followed Jesus sneakily into the courtyard of the high priest's palace during that sham uh, trial that he was a part of. And then Matthew, after that, gives us no insight into where these disciples were for the rest of this process. They're absent. They're gone. They fled into the night. And I think he feels the sting of that as he writes these words, and he's like, I wasn't there. But John, in his gospel, inserts that John was at the cross, at least for a period of time, when Jesus commends his mother, Mary, into John's keeping. He says, Mother or woman, see your uh, son. And then he says to John, See your mother. So he's, he's, he's committing Mary into John's keeping. That's the only mention of any disciples around the cross of Christ anywhere in the scripture. But Matthew says nothing about the disciples until the next chapter. Instead, Matthew leads with this in verse 55. 
just after the death of Christ, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him. Now, we know that there were more than just the 12 disciples that followed Jesus around in his three-plus-year ministry. At one point, Jesus had sent out 70 guys on an assignment through the area to preach the gospel of his kingdom. So it was more than likely, it was, quite a sizable crowd that followed Jesus around from place to place. We talked about the crowd and the 5,000 that he fed, which was more like 20,000 people. And obviously from this verse and others elsewhere, some of that crowd that followed Jesus around was made up of women. And some of those women were here at the cross as Jesus died. Well, it actually says they were there looking on from a distance. These women, some of whom we will meet by name in the next verse, had followed Jesus in and from Galilee, which is up north, and their main activity is going in going with Jesus was to minister to him. That word minister is the Greek word diakonosune, which is the root, the root of which we get our word deacon from. It means to attend or serve. And it refers to actions associated with providing care, often in the form of humble service. These ladies cared for Jesus. They took care of him, often with humble service, like Mary, the sister of Lazarus, had when she anointed Jesus' head and feet with the expensive ointment and then wiped it off with her hair. And not all these ladies did extravagant things like that like with an alabaster box of costly perfume, but the menial, humble acts of service would have been commonplace for these women. Who knows how many times they had washed his feet? How many times they'd carried his bags, cleaned a cut, washed his garments, and other seemingly menial tasks. And now... Here some of them are, everybody else having deserted Jesus, and they are the ones watching their Lord die a gruesome death. And while we don't know all of who of all the ones who were there, verse 56 introduces some of them by name to us, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So we've got three ladies mentioned. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now the sons of Zebedee were James and John, the disciples of Jesus, and their mother's name is Salome, or Salome, according to Mark 15.40. Also women looking on from distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and the younger and of Joseph, and Salome, or Salome. We're going to, I'm going to say Salome because that extra... Um, Syllable, just get some of nerves. Um, so Mary, Mary, and Salome are named as those who are among the many women who were watching the horrors of the cross from a distance. And these ladies had differing levels of involvement in history with Jesus, to be sure. Mary Magdalene is described in Luke 8-2 as Mary, that's the, yeah, yeah, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, or Joseph, as in what uh, Jason read this morning, is described a little more in detail in John 19.25 as the wife of Clopas. Now, the ancient historian Eusebius 
says that Clopas was Jesus' uncle, so this Mary would have been his aunt. And then Salome, James and John's mom, was also probably an aunt of Jesus, with many tying the James and John family to Jesus as close relatives. We talked about that in a passage a long time ago. So these ladies are tied to Jesus in familiar and familial ways, and they've served him as he's made his way around Galilee, and now they followed him down to Jerusalem from Galilee to be at the feast, and they stand and watch their rabbi, their Lord, their deliverer, their savior, their kinsman, dying and now dead on a Roman cross. And Matthew doesn't mention it, but like we saw earlier, we know that Jesus' mother had been close by too and had watched him die there. Where were the disciples? Don't know. But these ladies from a distance are surely hanging in as much as they can, as painful as it must have been for them, as powerless as they must have felt in just wanting to serve them. And now Jesus, God in the flesh, the Son of God, is dead. What do you do with the dead body of Jesus? Well, we're about to see that unfold in a very peculiar way. Verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. So this verse starts with a time reference. We know that Jesus had yielded up his spirit, died at the ninth hour, which would have been 3 p.m., Here, the time reference is when it was evening. Now, we saw earlier in the chapter that the sun had gone black for three hours from noon to 3 p.m., and it would seem that it had started working again somewhere around 3 o'clock when Jesus died, amazingly, right? Evening means sundown, which would be the beginning of the day for the Jews. They would soon go into their homes and celebrate the Passover with their families. And just before all of that, Matthew tells us that there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. Now, there's not much in the Bible about this Joseph. And I'm like, y'all got to get more names than Mary and Joseph. I mean, come on. Great day. Which Joseph is this? Which Mary? That Mary. Don't know. Um, But this is not Jesus' earthly father. We don't know what happened to him. He disappears after the whole Egypt thing and settling in Nazareth way back in Uh, early Matthew. So this is not his earthly father. This is a different guy who was a disciple. And there's uh, three verses that give us a little bit more detail about Joseph. Mark 15, 42 and 43. And when when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, now watch this, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Luke 23 Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, the council's decision and action to kill Jesus. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. And then John describes him this way in John 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. So we learn from these verses that he was from Arimathea, which is the same town as the Old Testament Ramah, which is where Samuel was from. Um, He was a disciple of Jesus, albeit a secret one, because he was afraid of the Jews. Why was he afraid of the Jews? Because he was a member of the council, which probably means the Sanhedrin. 
The same council that tried Jesus and found him guilty, but, it's, but we learn from these passages that Joseph did not agree with the decision to kill Jesus. And overall, he seems to be a decent guy. They call him righteous, a good man. So what's his part to play in this post-death chapter of Jesus? Verse 58. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Now, that's a pretty simple couple of sentences, but there's a lot implied here. This was an influential Jewish man, a leader, who had followed and learned from Jesus secretly. And he does something pretty audacious here. He literally goes to Pilate. Now remember Pilate, we kind of make fun of Pilate and think he's a weakling, but Pilate is the highest ranking Roman official in the area. And it had to take some courage, and Mark says that it did take some courage, to go to Pilate, and he asks if he could have the dead body of Jesus. Now, remember, the Jews and the Romans didn't really get along very well. And we said in a previous message that Pilate's relationship with the Jews was always tenuous. So for a Jewish man, even one of influence like Joseph, to approach Pilate with a request was probably not commonplace. And throw in the fact that Joseph would be revealing himself as a follower of Jesus to the Jewish people whom he had been afraid of. That's a big deal. And if he handled the dead body of Jesus, he couldn't participate in the Passover festivities since he would be considered unclean. And, to cap it all off, he's showing devotion to a man whom he had loved, but this guy's dead now. What good's a dead guy to you? You'd followed him, you loved him, you learned from him, but now he's dead. There's no gain for Joseph here at all. It's all adverse and bad for him in all of this. All risk, no reward. Except he gets to handle a dead body. Congratulations. He's risking his neck to carry the dead body of a man whom he believed maybe could have been the Messiah. And he may even get censured or arrested by the Roman governor or the Jewish council that he's a part of for having anything to do with this dead, condemned criminal. But Pilate, it says, ordered that Jesus' body be given up to Joseph. Joseph just must be lucky or something, right? Ain't no such thing as luck, y'all. It's called providence. God is doing this. Verses 59 and 60. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. So from these two verses, we see that Joseph took the body of Jesus for the purpose of burying it. Now does this mean that he himself took Jesus' body and carried it to where he was taking it? very probable okay we'll say probable maybe the very possibility that he's the one carrying this dead body speaks volumes of this guy's devotion to Jesus if the site that we call the garden tomb which is considered to be the tomb that Jesus was laid in if that is the one he didn't have far to carry it because it is incredibly close to the site that is Golgotha or Calvary. Very close. I mean, literally a stone's throw. So he wouldn't have to carry it far if that is the site, which they're pretty sure it is. Um, so Joseph wraps the body of Jesus in a clean linen. Now, this was going to be ugly business. 
Jesus was lacerated. Jesus had bled profusely for hours and hours. Jesus had been crucified with nails in his hands and in his feet. He had had a spear stuck in his side, John tells us, that water and blood gushed out of. This was not going to be a neat, clean experience where we just wrap him up a little. No, this was going to be yuck. And Joseph takes this clean linen shroud, which, now we won't go there, and he wraps him up in it. This bloody, nasty, filthy work. And that would have been the common burial procedure for those who got buried to be wrapped in a linen shroud. But most victims of crucifixion did not get buried. Crucifixion victims' bodies were usually either left on the cross to rot or be eaten by birds on the cross. Or they were thrown into the dump just outside the city, the dump called Gehenna which burned day and night with the stench of refuse and death, where the worm dieth not and the fire is never quenched. That's usually how crucifixion victims were taken care of. They were either just eaten on the cross or rotted on the cross or thrown into the dump. But Psalm 16.10, watch this, speaking of the Messiah. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, or... Let your Holy One see corruption. It's kind of like getting an upgrade to first class when you get on the airplane, right? He should just get dumped in the dump. But Jesus is getting an upgrade here. He's not your typical crucifixion victim. He's not going to see corruption or be corrupted even in His burial. Luke 23.53 shows us uh, about this tomb that Joseph is laying Jesus in. Then he took it down, the body, and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. See, if there's a dead person in there, it's corrupted. It's unclean. So Jesus doesn't get left on the cross to get eaten by birds. He doesn't get thrown in the dump. He gets laid in a tomb, a new tomb, that no one had ever yet been laid in. No dead person had ever been in this tomb. It had never been corrupted by a corpse. So it was ceremonially clean. Matthew tells us it was a new tomb cut out of rock. Now this, I don't know if you'll be able to see this or not. Eh, Not so much. Up here between the branches is a, that's the garden tomb that they think is the, the actual tomb that Jesus was laid in. So you see, it's cut into the sheer face of a rock. That would have been hard work. It would have been expensive work. This was a rich man's tomb. And it was clean, untouched by death. Why is that important? So, Jason read this morning, again, again, we didn't really cooperate with each other here, but they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, Isaiah says, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. God had said through Isaiah 700 plus years before this event that the Messiah would suffer, die, and be laid in a rich man's tomb. Now, time out. If somebody told you 700 years ago where you'll be buried, how impressive is that? I don't really have enough reason to believe in the Bible. Here's one. One. 700 years ago, God said that His Son would be laid in a rich man's tomb. 
And that happened, luckily, right? Providentially. Not abandoned to corruption, like the psalmist said, but given privilege with the wealthy in his burial. Now, R.C. Sproul says that this burial in this new expensive rich man's tomb was the beginning of Jesus' exaltation. His burial was the beginning of his exaltation. I like that. God is not waiting for the resurrection to reward and exalt Jesus. No, He's already showing favor and honor after Jesus has finished the work of redemption. Jesus is receiving a wealthy man's gift here in His death, one fit for a king, appropriately enough. And you might be able to see... Oh, I don't have it up there. You won't see it if I don't have it up there. There's a little rut in front of that door that goes toward that other plant back there. That's where they would have rolled the stone. It was cut out for that very purpose. Um, that was, and that, that large stone was to be rolled to cover the entrance of the tomb, which is exactly what Matthew says happened. And that stone was usually large enough to need multiple people to move it. No one person was going to roll that stone in place or out of place. So Joseph had the stone put in place, and then it says that he went away. Blood on his hands from doing the dirty work of burying Jesus in his expensive, new, clean tomb. But not everybody went away. Verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. And I can't help but look back at this picture, which I keep taking down putting back up. They're sitting there somewhere. And they're watching the stone roll over the mouth of the tomb. And they're just sitting there. These ladies, these two ladies, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who had seen Jesus die, they followed Joseph as he took the body of Jesus to the tomb. They can't leave Jesus, even his dead body. They want to know where their Lord is buried And listen, once we get into the accounts of the resurrection, they're not going there in hope of him coming out. That's not why they're going there. They're going there because they just can't let him go. We know from the accounts of Jesus' resurrection that they will visit the tomb to anoint the body with spices and anoint him to to kill the smell of rotting flesh. So again, they're expecting him to stay dead, even though he had said many times he wouldn't. So they spy out where the body is laid and they sit there opposite the tomb feeling and thinking who knows what. I get the feel of a traumatized loved one sitting at the graveside of one of whom they've lost refusing to leave because they just can't let go. Everybody else is gone and they're just sitting there. And that's where we'll leave them until the next time we come back into Matthew to be continued. Meanwhile though, This tomb site's about to get a little bit more crowded. Verses 62 and 63. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. So it's the day after the crucifixion. The next day, Matthew says, that is after the day of preparation. So this is the Sabbath, the day of the Passover, the high holy Sabbath. And on this high holy day, where are the religious leaders of Israel? The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered at the temple? No. 
at their homes, worshiping with their families? Another nope. They gather before Pilate. What? The Roman governor, that guy. Now why in the world would they go there on this high holy day? They have good memories, you see. They say to him, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, Ha ha, he's not alive anymore. Nudge, nudge, we did that. We remember that when Jesus was still alive, that he said, After three days I will rise. Now I love that they address Pilate so politely, Sir. Actually, it can be translated Lord, by the way. And their concern is valid. They remember that when Jesus was alive, he had said, after three days I will rise. Now this amazes me. Shouldn't this be the rallying cry of the disciples? Of the followers of Jesus? Shouldn't Jesus' disciples be hyping each other up with a countdown to the third day? It's coming. Y'all heard that message. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. They should have originated that message. But they aren't. Because he had said on a number of occasions that he would be killed and that he would rise on the third day. His own words, many times. But again, Jesus' adherents aren't anywhere to be seen. They're locked behind closed doors for fear of being killed themselves. But the enemies of Jesus, they've been paying attention. Listen, church, that's important. We'll talk about that in the end. And they remember and rehearse that this imposter, this fake, this phony misleader had said that he would come back to life after three days. They remember that. And they know what Jesus has said, and they share that info with Pilate. Now imagine being Pilate here, by the way. You think you're done with this. Your wife had told you to have nothing to do with this righteous man. You wash your hands out of fear to proclaim your innocence in his death. And now people are saying that this guy that you killed predicted that he'd come back to life, by the way. Good times for Pilate. So what do the religious leaders want? Verse 64. Therefore, they asked Pilate, order the tomb to be made secure. (laughs) Make sure the tomb is secure. (laughs) Until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. So they asked Pilate to order that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Now imagine burying someone and then making it a priority that they don't get out of their grave. Now, they don't actually believe that Jesus will come back from the dead. He's an imposter, they said. But they are worried that Jesus' disciples would come and steal the body of Jesus and then tell everybody, he's risen from the dead. So yeah, make sure these fishermen and cast-offs don't turn into professional grave robbers and freak everybody out. Because they say, that would be awful. That last fraud would be worse than the first. Imagine, they say, if people actually did believe that this loser came back to life. Imagine that. That would be worse than all this belief that resulted from him healing people and delivering people and raising people from the dead and all that teaching that he had. That would be worse than that. If Jesus actually came back to life, that would be horrible. Or if people could convince somebody that he wasn't there anymore, and even though it wasn't real, if they could convince people that it was real, that would be awful. That would be worse than all this other stuff that we had to kill him for. So make sure this tomb is secure at least until the third day. They were listening. They paid attention. They knew the details. That dead body needs to stay in that tomb, and it needs to stay dead, and everybody needs to know that it's so. 
So they ask, take some soldiers, Pilate, secure this tomb and keep this guy dead. Please, sir. How does Pilate respond? Verse 65. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. Now Pilate, just he's not playing their games anymore. Seems like he's just done with the whole thing. He says they have a guard of soldiers. This probably refers to Roman soldiers who had been assigned to keep order in the temple. The temple police. And those Roman soldiers answered directly to the chief priests and elders. So Pilate is probably telling them, utilize those soldiers. Take those guys and make that tomb as secure as you can. Kind of drips with sarcasm if you ask me. Help us secure this grave. Okay, you you got guys. See if you can secure it with them. Make sure this dead guy and his measly band of followers don't deceive anybody else. I just think Pilate's done with the whole deal, having literally washed his hands of it already. So then what? Our last verse for the day, verse 66. So they went. (laughs) This is comedy gold here. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. They said, okay. We'll take these soldiers and we will make this place secure. They take their soldiers, they walk them to the tomb where Jesus had been laid by Joseph of Arimathea and they seal the stone. Now what's that mean they seal the stone? It means they took some wax or clay or something and they stuck it where the the stone would have met the wall so that if anything moved, if that stone moved at all, that seal would be broken and they'd know. Boy, that's security, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've laughed all week at this. This has cracked me up. Man, well, no, this will this will work. This 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 will hold. This is good wax. <laughs> this is our wax. It's holy wax. We'll put a stamp in it. <laughs> we'll know if somebody tampered with this thing. You sure will. They secured the tomb with soldiers and wax. <laughs> good luck with that. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to keep a dead man dead and to make sure that the tomb that he's in is occupied with that same dead guy. Turns out that really was an impossible mission though, wasn't it? (laughs) Because there are not enough soldiers in the world. There's not enough wax in the world to keep the will of God and hence the resurrection of Christ from happening. Listen, listen, listen. There is nothing as sure in the world as the plan of God. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, God's will, God's plan is going to be accomplished. Wax, soldiers, yeah, that ain't going to work. And the religious leaders were right. That, quote, imposter had said that he would rise on the third day. And when that happens, and it will, that second fraud will surely, certainly be worse than the first for them. A resurrected Christ is truly even more glorious than the pre-resurrected one. But for now, Jesus lies dead in the grave. Secure. You're right. (laughs) So then how do we apply what we've seen here this morning? 
we're going to look at three C's. Conniving, which is my favorite of the C's. Two N's in that, one V. Conniving, trust me, (laughs) I had to search it out. Conniving, caring, and courage. Conniving, caring, and courage. The first application point is conniving. You've got soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. The world and its systems are wired by the prince of this world, Satan himself, to try to keep the will of God from happening. And we live in the midst of that world. Jesus didn't save us and take us out of the world. He said, be in it, not of it, right? So we are constantly, all of us, believer, unbeliever, fighting a system that is conniving and trying to convince us that none of this is true. That's stupid. Who would believe something like that? Who would believe that God was born of a virgin? That he lived a perfect life? That he died on a cross to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. That he was dead and that he was buried. And he came out of the tomb on the third day, resurrected, and showed himself alive to over 500 eyewitnesses over a period of 40 days. And then he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercession for his people. And he's coming back one day. Yeah, right, the world says. Where's he at? It's been 2,000 years. And the world hammers us and hammers us and hammers us and hammers us and tells us how stupid it is to believe this. That's the world that we live in the midst of, every single one of us. And I'm going to hesitantly say something. They're pretty doggone good at it. So what do we do? Unbeliever, what do you do? Believer, what do you do? As the world hammers and connives and tries to keep the will of God from being true in the world in general and in your mind and heart specifically. What do we do? God's not unprepared for this, by the way. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There's an old Pentecostal preacher that I used to go to his church, and he called them all a bunch of smart dummies. Oh, they got the science behind them. If anything, COVID has shown me the science is always in flux. It is the very nature of science to be ongoing investigation, not a closed book. But they've got the science, and they could prove to you how a dead man could not come back to life. And they've got documents that show, hey, there's this one thing, that one written thing that somebody found sometime somewhere ago, and and it that one statement, and it shows us that this isn't true. The thousands of manuscripts we have of the New Testament. They're not true. But this one little obscure writing that somebody found buried underneath somebody's floor in ancient Palestine. Well, that's true. And that disproves all of this. And we buy it. 
we scratch our heads and wonder, what if they're right? What if they can't find every town along the route of the Exodus? Man, our faith is in trouble. You're right. God puts to shame the wisdom of this world by foolish things. He takes low things, despised things, ancient peasant rabbis to shame the things of the world. So the application point for the believer here is trust in God, not the conniving ways of the world. John says it this way, Do not love the world, believer. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and this is all there is, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. Do not put your faith, your hope, or your affections in the things of the world, believer. And don't let their conniving shake your faith. Their knee will bow before the Lordship of Christ one day. And I pray it's on... His terms and that they give Him honor and glory. If not, it's going to be for punishment. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Paul says in Philippians 2. And all the conniving of the world cannot stop that. Conniving. Two N's, one V. Remember that. Somebody's going to have that spelling bee. You're going to win. You're going to say, that preacher guy. I remember conniving. Second is caring. While the world connives and tries to deny the deity and the lordship of Christ, man, you look at these women. You look at this guy, Joseph, and they genuinely care about the person of Jesus. And they are a fine model for us today. And what impresses me so much is that they're doing this loving and serving in the midst of what seems like hopelessness. Again, they're not doing what they're doing saying, wait till this guy comes back from the dead. They're doing this saying, this guy's dead. And what are they doing? They're still loving him. They're still serving him. These ladies had carried his clothes, and who knows what they did for him. I know that they ministered to him. We know that Joseph just literally laid his life on the line because he cared about Jesus so much. Now, the charge here is for sure we should care about Jesus that way too. But how do we do that today? I can't bury him, I can't wash his clothes, but I can love you. And you can love me because we're the body of Christ, y'all. We're supposed to care about each other. Now, I'm going to challenge you this morning. Let's go ahead and make this as uncomfortable as we can. Everybody look around. Look around at the people in this room. Say hi to your neighbor. No, don't, don't say hi to your neighbor. Everybody say, Pastor Jason's preaching good to your neighbor. Don't do that either. You want to know who you should be powerfully, humbly, lovingly serving? It's these people. It's us. And I say that with passion, not because I'm mad at you. It's because this is it. Golly, that that, uh, article that Tracy and my wife and Lauren shared this week. 
per, I, I gotta find it because there's a line in that, and I should have put it in here. Let's see. Let's see if I can navigate social media and avoid the things of the world and find this quote. Mm, give me a second. This is terrible public speaking, by the way. This is it. I found it. Thank God. Providentially. There is nothing coming next. This is it. This is the kingdom. You are the kingdom. I'm the kingdom. We are the kingdom. And if you want to know what it means to care for Christ today, this is it. There's nothing coming next. We just get to worship Him for eternity after this. But in the here and now, the Jesus that we have to serve and love and care about is sitting in these seats this morning. So, Peter says, um, I got like blank screen here. I don't know why. Oh, look at there. Above all. Now, above all. Keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. People come into my house. I'm going to clean my house. And there's a dog hair everywhere. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. This is going really slowly. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. There's nothing coming next. Above all, right here. To the glory and dominion. Of God through Jesus Christ. Now I want to ask you. As you looked around and saw everybody. Do you genuinely care about these people? And if you do. Scripture tells us that we should pray. That we should excel still more. And if you're honest with yourself. And you don't. And please be honest with yourself. You need to pray. That the Spirit of God invade your heart and flood your head and your heart and your hands with love for these people sitting right here. There's nothing coming next. This is how I care for Jesus today. Galatians 5, 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love and serve and care when there's nothing in return for you. When you feel like you're just burying a dead guy. When you got no hope and you think these people can't help me. That's when you press in and love harder. And serve more. Don't back off. Don't withdraw. Don't run. Love these people. In the power of the spirit. Conniving and caring. And finally courage. It took great courage. For Joseph to do what he did. It took great courage. For these women to not run and hide. With the rest of the disciples. 
Oh, that God would inflame us with a courage that stands in the midst of a conniving world so that we can care for each other and proclaim the excellencies of our dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, glorified Lord. And it will take courage. Push against the fear and the conventional wisdom to do what needs to be done. It's not going to make sense sometimes. You're not going to get a reward for it here most of the time. People are going to mock you. People are going to ridicule you. People are going to abuse you and persecute you. Do it anyway with a steel spine infected and affected by the very spirit of the omnipotent God that we serve. Joshua 1.9 Have I not commanded you? The angel of the Lord tells Joshua, Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There is not a bloodier book in the Bible than Joshua. And so the angel of the Lord is standing, extolling and, and calling on Joseph, uh, Joshua because he knows what is in front of him. It's conflict, it's war, it's death, it's blood, it's loss. And he doesn't say, this is going to be tough, Joshua. I'm so sorry. No, he looks him in the eye and he says, you be strong and courageous. Why? Because for... The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Proverbs 28.1 The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Oh, for lion-like bold believers who proclaim the gospel in the face of persecution. Not inviting persecution. I want to be persecuted. That's not what I'm saying. But I'll stand by the truth. I'll go to the very tomb if I need to. To proclaim this truth about this Lord whom I love and whom I serve. And this courage is rooted in hope. Imagine the arrogance and the false hope of the chief priests and the scribes and these Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb. Okay, fine, whatever, we'll guard the tomb, that's what it takes. And if those measly peasants try to come and take this body, we will kill them. Ain't nobody getting out of this tomb. We got the wax on it, remember? They had hope. Now, imagine the hopeless feelings of those looking on. Imagine the hopeless feelings of these women. Imagine the hopeless feelings of Joseph of Arimathea who lays his Lord in his tomb. And rolls a stone over it and walks away bloodied and saying he's dead. Who had more hope? Well, that's a trick question. Because the will of God was going to be done and Jesus Christ was going to come out of that tomb. Regardless of how his followers felt or thought about it. They had a hope that these soldiers and that wax did not have. And we, listen to me, are to function in hope. True hope, knowing that the plan of God cannot be thwarted. 
We preach the gospel with strength and vitality and hope because it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. God has chosen the foolishness of the gospel to save souls. So we preach the gospel because God's going to do what God's going to do. And we're bold as a lion. Man, people laugh in our face. People mock us. People persecute us. People punch us. And we preach the gospel because we've got a steel spine. Why? Romans 5, 1 through 5. Got to have a Romans passage and everything, right? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You want courage? Find this hope. Find this Holy Spirit who sheds that love and that hope abroad in our hearts. Because listen, we talked about the burial of Jesus today. Listen to me, church. Listen to me, believers. Jesus' burial means that our sins are taken out of the way. He said there on the cross, it is finished. They are atoned for. They are paid for. No more debt to be paid. But watch this. Jesus being buried means that those sins that he bore in his body went into that tomb. And Jesus is going to come out of that tomb in a glorified body, unaffected by any sin. And the sins that he bore in his body beforehand will not come out of that tomb. They are taken out of the way. Never, listen, never to be resurrected again. We believe in the death of Christ. We believe in the burial of Christ. Because it's important to us. That's why we proclaim it every stinking week. Because that gives me my hope. I have bold, confident access into the very presence of God. Paul said in Romans 5.1 that I have peace with God because my sins are buried with Him. And yes, his body did come out of that tomb, but my sins never did. Carried away, never to be resurrected. This funeral that we've seen today literally has the happiest ending ever. And we should celebrate this funeral, this burial. And the happiest ending ever that we see in this funeral will echo out into eternity. Having taken our sins away from us, never to be brought up, never to be resurrected again. But this funeral has an open end as well, right? Jesus didn't stay dead. But that's for next time. Today, let's celebrate this funeral. And let's not, listening to the, let's not listen to the conniving of the world. Let us care for one another in bold, confident courage of the hope that has been placed in our hearts because of the burial of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, you have done it. 
There is nothing barring access into your presence for those who are yours. Our sins are taken out of the way, laid in that tomb, never to come out. But Jesus did come out of that tomb, and we place our faith in that resurrection knowing that we too will share, have shared in that resurrection, and we will be given a body like his, a body unstained by sin, unaffected by sin, untempted by sin, in which, through eternity, we will worship the perfection of your Son to your glory. You have done it, and you have done all things well, Lord. And we praise you, and we thank you. And if there be those here this morning, God, who have not placed their faith in this dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, and glorified Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, raise them to new life. Call them out of their tomb. That they may have their sins forgiven. That you might be glorified through their life as they escape the conniving of the world, as they receive care and give care to the body of Christ, and as they walk the rest of their days with courage in the hope that you have given us. Help us all, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. If you want to hang out and talk, be best to do it outside. We'll love you better out there.